0: And then if you would also go to page 70 in the back, and we'll read Article 1 of the Belgic Confession. Psalm 11. I remember being a 19-year-old college student Not really raised on Protestant hymnody. I sang that hymn for the first time and I'm not sure if my life was ever the same. Floored that you could uh, sing about doctrine so rich. That's always been one of my favorite hymns. Psalm 11. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. For the director of music of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. Grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Article 1 of our Confession of Faith, the Belgian Confession. Let's read this together for the last time as we have been pausing to go through this article slowly. Let us say this together with one voice. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being, which we call God. And that he is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. Something to keep in mind as we consider these things tonight is that the words. Justice and righteousness can be used oftentimes interchangeably, so I've chosen Psalm 11. Uh, there at the end of the psalm, of course, it says, for the Lord is righteous, and really there you have probably something very similar, very close to the Lord is just, and also worth noting that at around the time, uh, the early years of the Reformation, many theologians dealt with what they would just call the righteousness of God, but oftentimes within the righteousness of God, they would be treating not only the justice of God as well, but also the holiness. So justice, holiness, righteousness, sometimes you see uh, thinkers uh, using those interchangeably. Well, imagine you have two friends. One is, rightfully so, very concerned with justice and equity. Making sure that each action, every single action, has a rightful corresponding action to it. While his concern for justice and equity may be admirable, you can see how this would get a little bit tiresome rather quickly. You're over at his house, you think everything's good, everything's fine, so you take a soda from his fridge. He's at your door the next morning making sure that you pay him back. But... Your other friend has her own idiosyncrasies. Her concern with being good to people is so crippling that she often convinces herself to do something wrong because she is so beholden to trying to be a good friend. So she helps someone cheat on a test. She never collects rent from her tenants. Things like this. We would say that it would be hard to have any confidence in either of these friends. They both are lacking the proper balance between knowing right from wrong and being properly motivated by love towards others. The kind of friend you want is a friend who loves you as a friend and yet also has a fierce and a wise application of right and wrong in the world. One who is both generous and courageous in the way that they view right and wrong. This is, in in some sense, what we have in our great God, a just God who is also good. Well, here's what, go- what we're going to do tonight as we've been doing over the last several weeks. We're going to look at these attributes, try and define them, give scriptural support for them, and then apply this knowledge to a certain text. So if I get to Psalm 11 and you're worried that f- 15 minutes has already passed and I'm just getting to the passage, don't worry, I've planned it that way or at least something like that way. I don't know that I have it down to the second, but that's what we're going to do tonight. These two attributes of God... The justice of God and the goodness of God. Since God is both just and good, his people can find their confidence in him. Since God is both just and good, his people can find their confidence in him. God's goodness could be defined this way. It's his willingness to display an unceasing generosity towards his creation. And unceasing generosity towards his creation. We see this in the creation account of Genesis 1. God is benevolent. God is generous. Day after day, God speaks things into existence. Things which he did not have to speak into existence. And each and every day, he looks at what he makes and he says that it is very good. Other theologians will describe God as being the everlasting wellspring of all good things. And we see that in the last phrase of Article 1 of the Belgic Confession, right? The overflowing fountain of all good. God's goodness is limitless. God is a good God because he loves to impart the good things even from himself to his creation. God imparts the goodness that is found in himself. The goodness of God has been something that Christians have struggled with, even from the days of the early church. How do we think of God as good if he is just? At uh, the uh, worst moments, there had been a tendency to look upon God of the Old Testament, God the creator, differently than the God who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was sort of a separating ...of these two ideas. And it was so bad that even in the first couple centuries... ...people were led to believe that the Bible portrayed two gods. uh, Basically one of the Old Testament and one of the New. The God of the Old Testament was seen to be just... ...and uh, overly just. Very uh, centered around, around punishment. And of course we know one of the reasons we... ...oftentimes take our assurances of grace... ...assurances of pardon from the Old Testament is to show... That God never changes. His mercy and His grace is always found. Uh, the story of redemption certainly is one that develops from Genesis to Revelation, but God never changes. He always is exactly who He reveals Himself to be. And Scripture shows us that there is one God, one God, and that this God is good. Remember, for, for instance, Mark chapter 10, where uh, the rich young man comes to Jesus and he calls him good teacher. And one, of the, one of the things you have to remember in the Gospels, when we're reading, uh, we're reading the stories of Jesus, of course we know the Gospel stories are in the New Testament, but when Jesus was living his life before the cross, we are dealing with the old covenant era. And so this man comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. God is good. God is a good God. God's goodness is foundational. Far from being something that would drive us to despair, not being able to understand this God, how do we put all of the pieces together, the goodness of God is foundational to both our life and our salvation. The reason we can trust him, the reason we know that he is a God who is for us is because he is a God who is good. His goodness is clearly seen in the way that his works flow out towards his creatures. His goodness flows out first generally. His goodness flows out generally. We read in in scripture that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. When the rain falls, it's not as if it skips over the houses and the yards of non-Christians. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. His goodness flows out generally. His goodness also flows out specially to human beings. Human beings are the special recipients of the goodness of God. We read in the book of Genesis, I will give you dominion over the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air, the things that uh, God handed over to the dominion of man. So generally, To all things, especially to human beings, and then especially to his people, to the elect people of God. We read at the beginning of Psalm 73, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. There is a special love that God reserves for his own, whom he has chosen. That is a flyover of the ju- of the goodness of god how about the justice of god the justice of god the justice of god we might define this way to be just is to do things in a sound and an upright manner it's to do things always do things rightly and to see to it that there is a correspond- there is a correspondence between deeds and consequences so God's justice is the character by which he accomplishes all things, for he does all things rightly. He does all things rightly. We cannot fully comprehend the justice of God. Theologians will say that it is manifold, so there's, it's multifaceted. There's many different ways in which we must consider the justice of God. But there you are know, three titles of God that I'd like to use to help us understand The justice of God. The first is God as Lord. God as Lord. How does this open up to us the truth about God as being just? The word for Lord can also mean master. God has revealed in his word that he has complete dominion and full power over all things in heaven and on earth. We read in Psalm 89. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. According to God's power, all things are under his control and he does as he pleases. But all the things that he does are just. But they are not just simply because God does them. That's another important thing we need to understand. It's not as if God could do anything he wanted and then that would be just. No, God always acts in accord with his character. He has defined for us what justice is and we expect and know that he will act in accordance with. With all of those things. This, this dominion. This power that he has as Lord. Is seen particularly in the sovereign freedom that he exercises. In bringing people to himself. Those truths that we just, that we just sang in that hymn. Towards the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste. And perished in our sin. The apostle Paul reflects on this in Romans chapter 9. Asking if God is unjust because he does as he pleases. This is what the apostle says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Perfect for us to consider tonight, right? By no means, he says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? In other words, why? how can God still condemn? For who can resist his will? And here's the answer. And, and this is something that foundationally we need to get we Want to be more biblical as Christians, if we want to have a right worldview, and this is something that I think not only non-Christians, but even Christians struggle today because of, because the, the world is so often telling us that as the individual, we are sovereign over our lives, that we have absolute sovereignty over the things of our life. But here is what Scripture says: how does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Whatever God wills to do is just as it accords with the authority which he has shown he has had even from creation. God is Lord. God is God. God is God. Of course he is, but there I mean particularly he is our God. So he is a divine being who is transcendent over the heavens and the earth and he is concerned with being his uh, he is concerned with being a god to his people. He shows mercy and forgiveness to those who repent. We read in Psalm 51, "Deliver me from but from blood guilt, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness." David cries out, he says, "You are the God of my salvation." You are my God. And this is part of the great mystery that we need to consider. That God, as the just God, as the righteous God, fulfills the promises to his people. Particularly, he fulfills the promises he has given to forgive our sins. Thus, sinful people can be welcomed and embraced by the God who is just. Someone who gives his word and then strays from it, Someone who breaks all of his promises would not be considered just. Thus God is just in staying faithful to the covenant promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. As that unfolds in scripture, we see that God has a lot of work to do in redeeming us in order to remain faithful to that promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. Our sins need to forget, to be forgiven. We need to be created anew. We need to be made righteous. We need to be renewed and reformed after the image of our Savior. This all comes into consideration when we think about the justice of God. John Calvin considered this. And he found that because God is just in fulfilling his promises, the justice of God actually leads us to his goodness. He saw these as, as really attributes of God, the justice and the goodness. He says this, by the justice of God, we are to understand his goodness. For this attribute, as usually ascribed to God in the scriptures, does not so much denote the strictness with which he exacts vengeance, in other words, it's not more so about his judging sin, as it does his faithfulness in fulfilling the promises of extending help to all of those in need. Why? Because God needs to remain true to his promises, to redeem people, to forgive sin, to be merciful. That's all part of his justice too, because he needs to remain faithful to his promises and keep his word. Thus he is a God who does not abandon his promise to help us in our time of need. God is Lord, God as God, that is our God, and then God as judge. God as judge. We define it this way. God loves righteousness and he hates iniquity. And he judges both. He judges both in word and deed by exercising anger towards iniquity. And favor, love and mercy towards the good. He is a just judge. Psalm 50 says this. The heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. What we know... As we, as we think about and consider God as just judge, what we know is that he will make his righteousness known in due time. And he will make it known from heaven above, and he will vindicate his name from all of the dishonor that is done against his name. All of the sinning, all of the rebellion against God, each and every human being owing him allegiance as his creature, but yet running from him. We know that God will vindicate his name as a just judge. So, we come to a hinge point as we consider this. If God is so just, then why can we who are sinners be welcomed into his favor? Uh, how can we be called his people? It seems that this is a contradiction. It seems that this leaves some of the attributes of God in tension. But really what it does is it points to the effectual nature of Christ's work on the cross, doesn't it? There is no contradiction between God's justice and his mercy because at the cross we see both fully on display. God's justice and his mercy meeting perfectly and perfectly coexisting at the cross. The Son of God suffers to vindicate the wrath and the justice of God those that Jesus represents at the cross are forgiven and they are they are forgiven in order to show the boundless mercy of God but Christ is punished in order to show the absolute justice of God we read this exact thing in Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What does the word propitiation mean? Something that turns away wrath. That's what Jesus is. He is an object that turns away the wrath of God. And he does so for us. This, that is the cross, this was to show God's righteousness. His justice. The cross was to show God's justice. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Somebody looks at the sweep of the Old Testament and and looks down upon all of the children of man and they say, how is God just if he's being merciful and if he's forgiving all of these people? I don't see any kind of effectual payment for all of their sin. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. So how is God just if he's forgiving all of these people? But the cross answers that. It was to show God's justice at the present time, it says, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that he may be just because sins are paid at the cross. And justifier that is merciful and good and kind. And the God who loves his people to the one who has faith in Jesus. So at the cross we see that God can be both utterly just and utterly Merciful In Christ we learn that God does not set aside sin, but that sin must be punished. So the goodness of God and the justice of God are harmonious. One leads us to the other and vice versa. It's the only way that we can make sense of Scripture. It's the only way that we can do justice to all of the texts that say God is one or the other, that he is just and he is good, that he punishes sin and that he forgives sin, that he is faithful to his promises. And this leads us to the profound truth that God's word would have for us that God is one in whom we can have confidence. We can have confidence in this God. And this is what we see in Psalm 11. Psalm 11, there's a sense of despair in the first half of the psalm. We read the first three verses In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The first thing that we see is that refuge in the Lord gives courage to say no to temptation. We have sort of this this strange thing at the beginning of the psalm. David says, "...in the Lord I take refuge." And then it's almost as if, it seems like David is speaking against himself here. It's almost as if these these thoughts that would tempt him, these thoughts that are troubling him are flying into his mind, and almost as if he's speaking against his thoughts. How can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? See, we don't know exactly why it would have been wrong for David to flee here, other than he is the anointed king of Israel. And God has promised to protect him. But something is tempting David to flee. To run away from his home. Presumably you know, the, where, he, where his stronghold was when he was king. We don't know why it would be wrong to flee. But there is something about it. David knows he is not supposed to run away here. So it could be a particular event in his life. Or something else. We're not really sure. Most of our temptations will take a different shape right read psalm 11 we know that we are not king david so most of our temptations will take a different shape but the idea of standing and remaining firm is something that resonates with us when we think about temptation isn't it times of crisis come a temptation to react in a certain way what does god call us to do stand firm remain firm Be steadfast. It's exactly the right kind of imagery. We know what God has called us to be. We know how God has called us to live. That is the kind of person we are to be. Secondly, we learn this, that evil uh, will not always remain anonymous. It cannot remain anonymous forever, especially to God. The enemies of David think that they can bring evil against the Lord's anointed and that no one will ever find out. They're shooting arrows at him from the shadows, It says. As if they can remain in the dark and shoot at the Lord's anointed and no evil will ever befall them as a result of it. But we know that God will always know. God will bring all things to light. Why? Because he's a just God. When crisis brings us to the point of despair, we also learn that there is nothing that we can do by ourselves. When crisis brings us to the point of despair, there is nothing that we can do by ourselves. And this is a good thing to know. Even King David, when he's brought to the point of despair, he cannot dig himself out of that pit. He needs God. What can the righteous do, he says? The implied answer is, of course, nothing. Nothing. And if you want to understand Psalm 11, what you need to understand is the hinge between verses 3 and 4. Uh, David is brought to this point of despair. What can the righteous do? And then all of a sudden there is this shift. Seemingly out of nowhere, everything seems to change for David in verse 4. He says the Lord is in his holy temple. When uh, When we allow God's holiness, his justice, his transcendence, his power... To remind us of who he is, a powerful just judge who is also good. It gives us confidence that can only come from knowing that a sovereign God hears you in your distress. So that's the setting of the table, Psalm 11, the first three verses. And there's a restoration of confidence in verses 4 through 7. We read, beginning in verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. If you want to learn from David here, Do this, turn the eyes of faith away from your circumstances and on to the sovereign God. In verse 4, all of a sudden, King David no longer sees the crumbling foundations or the bending bows of his enemies. All of this reality that's before him, that's brought him to the point of despair. The foundations are crumbling, Their, their bows are bending against me. What does he see? He sees the majestic throne of God. He sees the God whom he has called his refuge in verse one. Think about that for a minute. His complete worldview has changed. All all the things he's thinking about have been transformed in an instant. I was reading this week, came across this quote by Corey Tenboom, thought it was powerful. And she said, Faith is like a radar that sees through. The fog. See, David is in a fog here in verses 1 through 3. He's in a fog, but then the eyes of his faith turn and they look up into heaven and they see the majestic throne of God, the God who is his refuge. He reminds us that the God who reigns on high sees all things. It says that God observes and he examines. That's really the same verb in Hebrew for observe and examine. This is a verb that's used to describe testing of precious metals by smelting them, by applying great heat in order to examine the purity of a metal. And this shows that the idea of burning is a double metaphor here in Psalm 11. It has to do with the people of God and it also has to do with the wicked. In regards to the righteous, God examines his people. He tests them. He places them under great scrutiny in order to bring about a greater purity later. But as it relates to the wicked, it's a symbol of judgment, fiery coals, and burning sulfur, which result in their destruction. So this is what we know. What we can take from Psalm 11 is that the circumstances of our lives are already revealing eternal truths. They're revealing eternal truths about who we are, about how much we are trusting in our great sovereign God. Is, are, the, are the circumstances of our lives refining us are we allowing them to refining us job is a man who certainly had great heat applied to his life we read this in job chapter 23 but he that is god knows the way that i take when he has tried me i shall come forth as gold my foot has held fast to his steps i have kept his way and have not turned aside i have not departed from the commandment of his lips I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. As we read this psalm, we must also remind ourselves of how it teaches us of our Savior. For it is Christ, it is Christ whose work was put under the microscope of observation. And while we think about the trials and the circumstances that refine us, that rid us of impurities. Christ had no impurities in the life that he lived. The life that he lived was absolutely perfect. And yet in this psalm, it is the righteous who escape the judgment. But did Christ, did Christ escape the judgment? No. He came under the very same heat and scorching wind of God's wrath that the wicked experience here in the psalm. Christ undergoes judgment so that he might make us righteous and so that we might also escape the wrath of God. For if God is to be just and good, sin must be forgiven through punishment and his promise of mercy must hold true. So notice then, brothers and sisters, that as we come to know the truth of that message, it must bring light to new realizations for us And our own spiritual lives. Christ undergoing punishment for us. Christ placed under great scrutiny for us. So that he might form in us and give to us new life. New obedient life. Concluding applications then as we wrap up our considering justice and goodness tonight. First, God's justice reproves those it 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 warns those it reminds those who continue to live in sin can we really with this knowledge of God's justice and righteousness go on carelessly doing that which sent our savior to the cross if we go on willfully sinning have we really understood the salvation of God As God's people, we ought to emulate his justice. We ought to live in an upright and proper way towards all our fellow human beings. We are the image of God, and we image God by living justly, by seeking to always do things in an upright manner, by seeking to love the good and hating evil. Knowing God's justice and his goodness and his salvation will also keep us from hidden and secret sins. As we continue to remind ourselves that God sees all. Just as the wicked who shoot the arrows at David from the shadows. God sees all and he will bring all to light. It keeps us from hidden and secret sins. Most importantly, our hearts redound in praise to God and thankfulness for the coexistence of his justice and his goodness he is just in his promises and he will not fail to bring us to his heavenly home in Christ just as at the end of Psalm 11 it says that the upright will see God he will bring them to eternity why why and how because Christ the righteous one and because in him God continues to create a people who are formed by his spirit A people who who live in the new creation life with which he gives to them. A people who love to glorify and enjoy him forever. This is the God who is just and who is good. When we consider those things together, it's easy to see why he is called the overflowing fountain of all good. Because he remains faithful to his promises, even if it means... Injury to himself, even if it means sending his own son, his only son, so that he might purify us, so that he might make us his own, so that he might forgive us. Serve this God, love this God who is just and who is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would, you would apply these scriptures to our lives and that through them you would speak to us. And that the Spirit would remain with us and that would guide us into all truth and all, into all obedience. For your honor and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.